Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the second episode of Perspectives Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Clark. And if you're joining us again, welcome back. So today, in this episode, we are going to be discussing the Food Safety and Modernization Act, or FISMA as it's referred to, and how it affects the dairy and agriculture industries. This Perspectives Podcast is sponsored by Phoenix Feeds and Nutrition, located in New Haven, Vermont. Farmers feed the world, and we help them do it with our advanced dairy feed and nutrition. So let's start with the Food Safety and Modernization Act, or FISMA as it's called. According to the FDA, it's the most sweeping reform of our food safety laws in more than 70 years and was signed into law by President Obama on January 4th of 2011. And it aims to ensure the U.S. food, uh, US food supply is safe by shifting the focus from responding to contamination to actually preventing contamination. Um, so I want to introduce our guest today. We have a great lineup. Uh, so we have in studio with us Louise Calderwood. Louise is back for this second podcast. She joined us for our first podcast where we talked about water quality um, and uh, and some of the uh, Vermont House bill. And um, Louise is the principal of Everything Agriculture, um, Government Relations Director of the Northeast Agribusiness and Feed Alliance, former Vermont Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, and she also teaches at Sterling College. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us again. And we also have David Santos, who's the co-owner and general manager at Phoenix Feeds and Nutrition. Um, David grew up on a dairy farm. He spent a lot of time uh, in the dairy world, and he spent many years as a nutritionist. Um, I know he worked out in California and now resides in um, Vermont and has been working with uh, or has, has been um, part of Phoenix Feeds for about 10 years, or the company's about 10 years old. Um, or are you, is it now 11 years? This is going to be our 11th year. Going on the 11th year. Nice. Well, we hear a lot of good things about you guys out there. So, oh, Thank you. Glad to have you in studio with us, David. Glad to be here. So uh, let's get into the, the meat of what we're talking about here um, in this Food Safety Modernization Act. Um, it's a pretty significant piece of legislation. Um, it seems like it's something that's been pending for some time, and now finally it's been signed in, and then also it takes some time to ramp up and actually um, take effect. Um, so, Luis, let's start with you and talk a bit about the background of this bill um, why this type of legislation is necessary and, and the type of impact it's going to have. Sure. If we look at this from a historical perspective, uh, the predecessor to the changes that we're seeing through FISMA was actually the Bioterrorism Act of 2002, a recognition that our food supply could be a source of terrorism in this country. Um, so that that uh, act came into being in 2002. All food production and processing uh, facilities are required to simply be registered. It's a free registration, um, not particularly onerous. And then in uh, 2006 to 2007, 2008, we had a number of very high-profile food safety violations in this country. Some of them actually brought about criminal charges against companies. What what can you name off some of those? Well, the one that that really tipped this over was the peanut, the 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 food safety issues with peanuts uh where there were criminal charges pressed. Uh that was that was criminal negligence that those companies were charged with. Remind me of what exactly happened. It was the type of peanut butter that you would find inside of crackers or inside of candy inside of candy bars, not the sort of peanut butter you'd buy in a jar. And um, there were food safety issues with that, which led to a number of deaths. 
and, uh, as I said, egregious violations on the parts of the companies. So those two pieces together um, led to a four- to five-year effort at the federal effort uh, before the legislation was finally passed in 2010. Getting to the point of passing it and then the president signing it in 2011 was a a long process filled with contention. Um, Folks arguing that this legislation um, was absolutely required, we needed tighter control, but then others saying that it was going to increase the scale of our food production and feed production um, businesses and and folks who thought that was the underlying premise to the problems was an issue of scale, larger businesses. So getting to the point of the, of the president signing this in early 2011 was a, a very involved, contentious process. And why was it contentious from from the side of the food uh, producers? Yes, some feeling that it would force small producers out of business, um, and uh, concerns that uh, we were just forcing food production into larger and larger businesses, so that when there were problems, it it had the ability to impact more people. Mm. Um, just as an idea of what we're looking at with food safety as far as the parameters or the scale of it in this country, it's estimated that about 48 million people a year um, become sick. Uh, so that's one out of six people in the U.S. Of that, 128,000 are hospitalized, and it's estimated that about 3,000 people a year die from food safety-borne illnesses. So mm. it, it is something that that we do need to address. Yeah, and also just from some of the research I had done, you know, it, it can also lead to lifelong illness too, you yes. know, if it doesn't result in death. So it's a very uh, devastating thing that can happen to somebody. Um, so then, so then, why is the law needed? The law recognizes the fact that those forty-eight million illnesses a year mm-hmm. are largely preventable. So the entire premise of FISMA is moving this from a response system, which is what we had previously, to a prevention and control system. It's an entire change in how we address food safety in this country. So tell me a bit about that, because I, you know, I personally, I'm not really sure what that means going from a response system to a preventative system, because you'd think that if there was some system in place, the idea was prevention, but not necessarily. No, and and Dave can put the details on this. I yeah. can give you the outline of the of the five sure. pieces that are in involved with a, 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 a prevention system, and then Dave can certainly tell you what that looks like on the ground. Um, the first is mandated prevention controls. So there, it's required that a company goes through an entire hazard analysis. Where are the hazards in each step? Of, of, in this case, animal feed uh, production and processing. Um, increased inspection. And in this case, the inspection is not just of the finished product, but the inspection will go all the way back to the producers of the raw material. So we're talking animal feed, um, the potential for inspection going all the way back to the folks growing the grain. Um, and then we're increasing our focus on imported food safety. So uh, we are requiring verification of importers that their processes meet the same processes required here in the U.S. Um, the third piece is under the, or excuse me, the fourth is that under the response protocols, there's now the ability for mandatory recall. And that's something that I think comes as a shock to a lot of folks. We did not have mandatory recall 
capability in this country. Um, we now will under FISMA. And then finally, it's enhanced partnerships at both the local and the state level, but between federal organizations and then foreign organizations. So those are the five pieces that really come into play through mm -hmm. FISMA. And today we're talking more specifically about um, the feed mills and, and feed production for um, animals. And uh, and it's interesting because obviously I think it's easy to digest, okay, why we would do this when it's when we're talking about the end consumer, but we're not quite to the end consumer at this point. So how does that factor in? I mean, are, are there, th by, by, by being preventative in a feed mill, um, is that mitigating disease and such that happens and that could be potentially passed through to the animals, which then would eventually make it into the food supply? It can, and uh, we've put... Uh, two different programs in place. We have a Safe Feed, Safe Food program that we have, and we've also worked on a uh, HACCP uh, program. Um, both these programs are very common in the pet food industry, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that we're finding with this new FISMA uh, law is it's going to increase or raise the standards of animal feed uh, to where it's going to be more like the uh, pet horse feed industry. Okay. So uh, a lot more paperwork. Sure. Um, we have a lot of SOPs in place now and in a lot of testing, um, a lot of protocols. So you're doing some, some comprehensive um, uh, renovations and upgrades at the mill, which is, is most of that in response to this? It is, you know, three years ago when we saw this coming, that's when we decided that we really needed to step up our game and, in. uh, get ahead of this and make sure that uh, we didn't get caught off guard. I think a lot of people have the tendency to just wait for it to happen and, right. then, and then react. And we're trying to be proactive and, and uh, be ahead of it. And by being proactive, do you associate that with also the, the social responsibility to kind of uh, set the norm or set the, the scene for others to follow suit? Well, yes and no. I think there's a lot of feed companies out there that are doing this already. Mm -hmm. um, the, the bigger companies like Cargill um, have policies that are probably ahead of this. So right. we're trying to which Cargill is yeah, they're a global company yeah, and, yeah. and we're a local company and right. so we're trying to um, be there with them. Sure, and and, I, and from my understanding that a lot of this has to do with like the record keeping. Um, and, uh, and so having a, a much more comprehensive way to track, uh, product as it goes through the mills and all those things. So can you talk to me a little bit about that and what that looks like and the type of interface that you have to use to make this happen? Well, uh, our consultant that we work with pretty, he made it clear to us that, uh, the way we make feed now with flat storage, wasn't really going to wasn't going to fly. Um, right now, there's a lot of opportunity for co-mingling of feeds, and that's one of the things with Safe Feed, Safe Food, and FISMA is that there can't really be any co-mingling, so everything has to be uh, in a separate bin. Mm -hmm. um, so our final phase, phase three that we're putting up right now, that uh, automated tower mixing system, batching system that's yeah. automated, um, eliminates all that. Um, every ingredient has its own bin. It goes from the rail car right into a bin, never touches any other ingredients until it goes into the mixer and, and you have a final product. 
So uh, it's interesting to think about that. Obviously, you have control over uh, your operation, right? But then you're also dealing with suppliers, uh, outside suppliers. We know that uh, various product is shipped in from all over. Um, and, you know, how do you also navigate those waters and know that you you can trust what's coming in and, and making sure? Is there is there like a much more comprehensive record system that is put in place from all aspects so that everybody knows that you're dealing with safe product to bring it in? Because you can do as much as you can to mitigate it on site. But if you have something coming on site that's, you know, maybe not up to your standards, you know, how do you how do you address that? Well, we have a supplier certification program. Uh, so every one of our suppliers has to be certified uh, based on our Safe Feed, Safe Food plan. Um, we visit each supplier, uh, look at their facilities, make sure that they are in compliance with our plan. Um, we try, we, well, we don't try, but we do. We source every ingredient, mostly in the minerals. There's a lot of minerals that come from China, and we try not to source those products. We try to get uh, everything out of the U.S. or out of Canada. Mm-hmm. There's a, some of the products we get, like Magox, comes out of Brazil, not China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's more opportunities for problems with some of the foreign products. Yeah, interesting. So does this, in any way, does this translate back to um, the farmer? Do they Are they going to expect any type of increased costs or... or you know, is this kind of something that's happening across the board and it'll be absorbed as it goes? We don't anticipate any cost to the farmer to do this. Yeah. Uh, part of the, uh, one of the things that's great about this new automation that we're doing is that it actually makes us more efficient. So we can make feed faster, cheaper, mm-hmm. and that actually gets passed down to the customer. Mm-hmm. So most of these costs to do all these uh, programs just get absor- absorbed. Yeah. Interesting. Now that's interesting, Dave, speaking at it from the perspective of the mill owner. Right. Uh, conversations that I've had with folks involved in the transportation mm-hmm. of the feed coming into the mills have indicated that because of the increased tracking requirements and um, the the increase of separation between types of ingredients, that some of the transportation companies are are contemplating just not transporting. Uh, feed ingredients anymore. So, for example, they're, they're ne- it's not simply sufficient to clean the rail car. There has to have been, prior to the animal feed, there has the, the two previous loads in that rail card had to have been things that would have been safe to show up and feed. So, for example, ground glass is is frequently transported by rail cars. If ground glass is transported, it's not sufficient to say there's a protocol to clean the car. There needs to be two more loads of something other than ground glass before that car is filled with something that will become an ingredient in animal feed. So, um, you know, while we're looking at the mills, which are really stepping up, they're being proactive, they're embracing this, um, we do anticipate there may be some implications in other parts of the industry that, that are involved with getting the feed to the mills. Yeah, well, and that and that's kind of leads me to another question, and it's the idea that um, obviously we've got the the larger markets and um, uh, the more commercialized, if you will, industry, and then there's also the farm to table side of it and things like that. And so I would imagine that this impacts anybody that's producing food. 
in this country, right? So even if it's a, a like a, a farm that's producing, say, meat product for a local restaurant, and you know they have a pretty tiny little operation going on, how does that impact those folks? This this is food safety. Of course, Dave and I are, are focused on the animal feed part of it, um, but uh, the, the much larger part of the bill is on human food. And um, there we do have some exemptions in place. And I really have to thank Congressman Welsh for this because he was in, absolutely influential um, for bringing this about. Um, there is a $500,000 exemption on the human food side. So if you are producing less than $500,000 of human food, so a small vegetable producer, mm-hmm. um, you are exempt. Okay. On the animal feed side, um, or or the pet food side, uh, the exemption there is a $2.5 million business is considered a very small business. It's estimated that's less than 2% of the animal feed produced in this country. It's about 4,300 co- companies. Um, but those companies have three years to come into compliance, and they are exempt from some of the the um, specific requirements of the law. Okay. Interesting. Um, so now this fully, like, when when is this actually going to come into full force? Well, the law um, comes into, into enforcement uh, in August of okay. this year. Yep. But then the largest companies, so those with over 500 employees or mm. over $2.5 million worth of sales, they have one year okay. to come into compliance. If you've got less than 500 employees, yep. you've got two years. And if you're a very small business, less than $2.5 million in sales, you've got three years. And David, you are in the final phases. So you'll you'll have this all buttoned up pretty shortly, right? We will. We're estimated to have the project done by October. That must feel pretty good to be ahead of the curve. Feel better when it's behind me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, in terms of the government uh, oversight, if you will, um, in any way, does this feel like it's a little bit um, overreaching at all, or do you think that everything that's put in place in this bill is appropriate and has its place and? will have the the most benefit and impact that it's set set out to. I I can certainly speak from an industry how we've approached this yeah. on trying to to reach a balance of what the industry feels is reasonable sure. and then um you know it would be really interesting to hear Dave's perspective of the person implementing it right, um right. in the mill. Um from the the industry's perspective, we have worked very hard to make certain that the information that FDA will be collected is protected from a proprietary perspective. There has been problems in the past when FDA has, has had to come in and do enforcement actions that proprietary information then became available. So a, a business's mixes and procedures now became public knowledge. Um, so we've worked very hard to make certain that doesn't happen. Um, and also trying to make certain that any of the um, fees involved are reasonable. So uh, under the inspection, if a mill passes on the first inspection, there's no problem. But if there's follow-up inspection, there's a $217 an hour fee involved with that. Right. Um, so we've worked hard to, to try and have those reasonable. Um, the other place where as an industry we've we've had a lot of attention is making certain that 
that words were in place saying that, for example, if a water supply is required, a water supply that Dave's going to be required for his mill is very different than someone mixing pet food. And so making certain that the language is flexible enough so that a reasonable person can make a reasonable assumption around things such as the water supply. And that that seems like, oh my gosh, why would you spend days and days drafting language on that? Well, when it comes down to a business's ability to conduct business, that sort of language becomes very important very quickly. Well, I think that I think that's huge because a lot of times some of the legislation that's been in place for say, you know, 70, 80, 100 years, whatever, it's not as easily adaptable. And by being able to get in there and make sure that it is able to that you are able to kind of analyze and say, okay, how do we make it work for that individual or for that company is, is really, um, uh, you know, necessary to to allow these types of um, bills to work on multiple levels. And, you know, I think that just based on some of the other legislation that I've heard or even things that we've dealt with as a company where it there's, there's certain things in place that don't quite apply but they haven't been adapted to then work for now, say, new tech companies and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. So to have that type of foresight going into it and really kind of pad it for the future seems like a like a really smart way to approach it. Um, so, David, on, on your side of the table, um, do you feel that that everything that's been implemented and, and, and all the things that are in the bill are appropriate? Or do you think that there might be some things that are unnecessary? I think in the feed side, for us, there's some things that are unnecessary. And one of the things that I noticed, um, uh, you've been to our facility, you know, it's there's a little bit of dust out there. There's, right. It's, yeah. it, it's an animal feed manufacturing facility, and they wanted uh, wash basins, to wa- stainless steel wash basins for your hands, for right. the employees <laughs> to wash their hands. It's not a restaurant, you right. know, when you go to the bathroom, wash your hands. Right. Um, we didn't win on that one, Dave, and we sure tried hard. <laughs> and I can see it in the pet food, you know? Yeah, I, sure. But uh, to feed cows like we do, I'm not sure where that really is going to Yeah, help. and we've all been on farms, and we know that yeah. the conditions that, not that they're bad, but, you know, cows live in certain sure. conditions. And um, yeah. Well, we're putting all these policies in place, and, and um, the feed gets delivered to a farm, and... <laughs> What happens there? You know, mm-hmm. it, this isn't going to affect farmers that I know of anytime soon. But at some point, they probably will see that's where the milk is really coming from, and they will start to look at farms. Um, if the milk going forward into the dairy processing plant now has an issue, right? With, through this law, there mm-hmm. is the ability now for the inspection to go back. To the farm now. All farms have to be inspected anyway. Dairy and meat right. are a little bit different critters sure, to begin with, sure. um, but it just it really clarifies that ability for the inspection to go all the way back to the farm when following back on the dairy processing side. Mm-hmm. But I, I fully agree with Dave on the hand washing sinks. I, right. I spent a lot of hours on the conference call and, and drafting yeah. responses on that, and we just couldn't get it pulled out. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure what business really likes more government oversight. Sure. But yeah, it's something that we can't spend too much fighting. I think people like Louise and AFIA have done a great job of trying to support us and change some of the laws that the FDA wants to uh, put into place. But One of the wins that we did have um, was on the use of what we 
we term byproduct feeds. So it's things such as distillers' grains or brewers' grains, the the, the leftover grains mm-hmm. from distilling and brewing alcohol. And uh, there originally was language that said that when every load of brewers' grain left a brewery, it was going to have to be a accompanied by a sheet of paper saying how it could be appropriately be used in dairy cattle or beef cattle or hog feed. And to put that sort of requirement on a brewery, they were just going to start trucking that stuff to the landfill. And and so we were able to get some reasonable things saying, no, that's Mm -hmm. that's Dave Santos's job to know how to appropriately use brewers. It's not the brewery's job. Yep. Yeah, because then you're essentially you're asking them to add possibly even more personnel just to deal with that type of thing. And, you and know, we know a lot of these brewers are not that big. And it's not their job to feed a cow. Right. That's Dave's exactly. job. Exactly. Um, so I think to, to, to wrap it up, um, do you think it goes far enough to protect our food system? Chris, Christian's looking at me with that one for those I of am. you out there who can't see that what's going on here. Um Certainly, I I do feel that the focus on personnel, operations, equipment, processes, and distribution, and pulling those together are an improvement. Um, I do have a concern around this, the potential of this to consolidate our industry. Um, There will be small business, small, very small businesses that will choose rather than to come into compliance, they'll they'll choose to go out of business. I feel that the premises of the law are sound. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about the, the potential for consolidation, and I'm concerned that FDA have sufficient technical assistance to help businesses come into compliance and meet the regulatory requirements. Those are my concerns. Yeah. How about you, David? Yeah, I think it's a good law. You know, um, it looked like there was uh, $27.5 million that went to FISMA this year, and the president's asked for $109.5 million for 2016. Um, that's a lot of money. Hopefully it's used wisely. Right. Um, you know, everybody wants to have safe food. I mean, this is – I think the United States probably has the cheapest source of food compared to Europe and a lot of other countries, but mm-hmm. um, we want to make – good feed we want to put out a good product our end customer is really the cow yeah and and those are the ones that we're trying to protect to keep safe sure well and i and i think it you know it says a lot that you've you've been proactive about um taking the approach of 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 doing what you need to do to make sure that you're providing your customer uh the cow and the farmer with uh with the best product possible so um so that's great but uh, well, thank you so much. I, I think uh, this sheds a lot of light on the subject, and uh, hopefully, some people can get a little better sense of what's going on with this because we know these bills can be quite dense and difficult to get through. Um, so, thank you again for coming in and meeting with us. So, we had David Santos and Louise Calderwood. Thanks again. Thank right. you. Thank you. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us on episode two of Perspectives Podcast. In our next episode, we will be speaking with Mike Wool regarding ownership transfer of small farms. So tune in.